0: We've got children's ministry that's still taking place, even though um, it's been a little bit difficult the last few months. And the same thing with church. It's still going on. It's good to see you all here this morning. And, and those who are watching online, uh, we, uh, we don't want to forget them either because we still are accountable to making sure that, that they still grow and, and that you are able to, uh, to still be a part of us, even though we're not always together. Um, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up your book of Hebrews in the New Testament and we're going to be looking at Hebrews chapter 10 today as we kind of make our way through. We're going to have, this will be four more weeks and we're, we're finished through Hebrews here and uh, it's, it's been a, a wonderful journey digging into this passage of Scripture and just seeing the things that are written in here as, as we're trying to to understand the change that's taken place from the old covenant with the Jews under Israel and and with God. And then all of a sudden, Jesus makes this transition into a new covenant, a new relationship. And it includes not just the, the Israelites, but everybody within the world. And so we've got this wonderful new covenant that we've been digging into through the book of Hebrews and helping us understand how things have begun to change into something that's even better. On April the 28th in 1958, a young Korean student at the University of Pennsylvania uh, finished his night of study, and he wrote a letter back home to Korea to his family. And, and after he finished that, he, he put the stamp on it. He headed down to the mailbox down the street on the corner there, and he mailed his letter home. And as he turned around there on 36th and Hamilton in Pennsylvania... A gang of 11 young boys, teenagers, confronted him and they began to beat him, to kick him. One had a lead pipe and was hitting him with that. Another one had a blackjack and and eventually they they just beat him up for what seemed to be no reason at all and they left him there um, dying. A few hours later, the police found him in the gutter, dead. The Philadelphia citizens... They were shocked at the violence, and they cried out, really, in 1958, for vengeance to be taken place. So the investigation went, and within about 48 hours, 11 of these teenage boys, ranging from the age of 15 to 19, were arrested and brought forth with charges for his death. The district attorney, he obtained permission to try the offenders as adults, so that he could seek the death penalty. A letter arrived just as the trial was beginning to take place, and it went to the prosecuting attorney. The letter came from Korea, and it was signed by this young man's parents and 20 of his relatives. This is the letter. I I searched through the uh, paper in Philadelphia online and found this letter. It says, Dear Sir, we, the family of Inho-Oh, On behalf of our whole family, deeply appreciate the expression of sympathy that you have extended to us at this time. In Ho had almost finished the preparation needed for the achievement of his ambition, which was to serve his people and nation as a Christian statesman. His death, by an unexpected accident, leaves the ambition unachieved." When we heard of his death, we could not believe the news was true, for the shock was so unexpected and sad. But now we find that it is an undeniable fact that Inho has been killed by a gang of Negro boys whose souls were never saved and in whom human nature is paralyzed. We are sad now, not only because of Inho's unachieved future, but also because of the unsaved souls and paralyzed human natures of the murderers. We thank God that he has given us a plan whereby our sorrow is being turned into Christian purpose. It is our hope that we may somehow be instrumental in the salvation of the souls and in giving life to the human nature of the murderers. Our family has met together And we have decided to petition that the most generous treatment possible within the laws of your government be given to those who have committed this criminal action without knowing what it would mean to him who has been sacrificed to his family, to his friends, and to his country. In order to give evidence of our sincere hope contained in this position, our whole family has decided to save money to start a fund to be used for the religious, the educational, vocational, and social guidance of the boys when they are released. In addition, we are going, daring to hope that we can do something to minimize such juvenile criminal actions which are to be found not only in your country, but also in Korea. And we are sure everywhere in the world We have dared to express our hope with the spirit received from the gospel of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who died for our sins. I don't know the outcome of the trial. I don't know what happened to those boys. And I tried to find some research, and I just couldn't find anything about it. But I know that the attitude of the parents and the family members, his relatives, just... It brought a whole different outlook to this trial when they wrote that letter. And I think few of us will be challenged to practice this type of forgiveness under such difficult circumstances as this Korean family had. And all of us are going to face problems. We're all going to face struggles. We're all going to face a moment when we need to forgive somebody else, maybe because they slandered us or, or they threatened us or they abused us or, or they, they stole from us. The amazing thing is that in Christianity, it produces people who have a spirit and a and a heart that had the ability to forgive those who sin against us simply by the grace of God. We know what we have been forgiven, and so we are to forgive as well. Christ's sacrificial death on the cross has the power to produce people just like this family who, who are being made holy because this is a much better way to live than what our world is offering. So this morning, I, I would like for us to recognize the appeal that comes out of our text this morning in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 25. And, and we will undiscover we'll that, that, that his power has the, uh, the ability to establish through his sacrifice and his resurrection people who have this community of faith And the ability not only to forgive, but to encourage and to inspire and to move forward. Our text begins in verse 19 of Hebrews chapter 10. It says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near." Our text begins by telling us to draw near. He says, let us draw near. And our writer says in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 19, that, that he's referring to this better hope that we have through which we are to draw near to God. We have a hope that, that enables us to, to be able to get close to God and, and not to be ashamed of it. And in Hebrews seven twenty five, we read that Jesus is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through Him. And at the beginning of our chapter here in chapter 10 verse 1 we read that the opposite about the sacrifices of the old covenant it, it tells us that really the old covenant it can never it can never make perfect those who draw near it had no ability to do that so that's why Jesus instituted a new covenant a new relationship with us to enable us to honestly draw near to God without having somebody else, a high priest once a year, speak on our behalf. So, here now in Hebrews chapter 10, beginning in verse 19 through 25 or through 22, we're encouraged, even ordered, to draw near to Him. Again, let's look at Hebrews 19 through 22. He says, Therefore, brother, since we have confidence, since we have confidence to Enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by a new and a living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near. Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. In one lengthy sentence, that's what that is, verses 19 to 22. In the Greek language, it's just one sentence. We identify three things. We identify the motive, the manner, and the means in which we have the ability to approach God guilt-free with this new covenant. So what is the motive? The motive is, is that which gives us a reason that we can approach Him. All right, well, it's twofold. Hebrews 10, 19 tells us this. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, and in 10:21 it says, and since we have a great priest over the house of God. See, the efficiency of Jesus' sacrifice on the cross is described there in chapter 9 that we just looked at last week. And, and the reference to blood helps us to understand the light of of everything that goes on because we know that blood has to be shed in order for a sacrifice to be made for the sins of people. And so our statement here in verse 19, it kind of echoes the command of, of Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16, where it said, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. Confidence. I don't know about you, but I, I wonder, what does it mean to be confident in something? It, it, it has this ability to be bold, the ability to have this fearlessness about you, that you're going to go and charge that hill, as, as, as Teddy Roosevelt said there at San Juan. Let's go, you know. As Caleb, when they crossed the Jordan River, and he was wanting to go, and he says, give me that mountain. Let me go after the people there. And you think, here he is at 80 years old, and he's ready to take on the nation. There's confidence in this, and this is what Hebrews chapter nineteen or Hebrews chapter ten tells us. We have this confidence. Maybe it carries with us the idea of, of authority and permission based on the sacrifice of Jesus and what He has done for us. It gives us the ability to feel secure that we can enter into heaven, into the most holy place, not by what we've done, but what He has done. So when we think about this, Hebrews 10, 20 21, he says this new and living way that he opened for us through his curtain that is his flesh. And since we have this great priest over the house of God, when we have this boldness to enter into the holy place because Jesus has opened it for us, he serves as our great high priest, and it gives us the encouragement to go there. You know, Sometimes it's, it's difficult to walk into a place that you've never been and, and to realize that there might be some authority back in there that might say, what are you doing here? I, I remember that picture of, of little John as he's hiding underneath his, his father's desk, President Kennedy. And he's just down there. He's got, I don't know any other child that would have had the confidence or the boldness or the fearlessness to to go into the Oval Office there while everything is taking place and to get underneath the desk and feel comfortable. We have that kind of confidence. To enter the very presence of God, not by anything that you have done or what I have done, but what Jesus has done. His sacrifice gives us that boldness in order to do that. We have this boldness and to go into the very presence of God. And the way to the Father, he says here in this chapter, is a new and a living way. It's new because Jesus opened it through, he says, the curtain or the veil, through his sacrifice on the cross, through his body being given. And and, and it gives a completely different situation then when we consider standing in the presence of God. The resurrection of Jesus, this one who was sacrificed, is alive. And so it's not just a new way, but it is also a living way. We don't have to fear death. So he told his disciples that he was the way. In John chapter 14, he says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And the early Christians, we read in the book of Acts, they discovered that people were calling them, or maybe they were calling themselves, the way. We call ourselves Christians today, but the very first indication of who they were, if they went by a name, they were called the way. They followed the way. In Hebrews chapter 9, verse 8, that term describes our access to God. And His atoning work has provided free access for everybody believes now our writer here in Hebrews chapter 10 he he's he's he mentions this idea of a curtain which refers to the veil that was in the tabernacle or in the temple that separated God from the rest of the people and so God's presence would reside within the most holy place but nobody could go in there except the high priest once a year we've talked about this Because God was separate from the people. We could not have access to him. And the high priest could only go in if he had fulfilled everything according to ritual before he went in. And then he offered up a sacrifice for his own sins. And then he would go and offer up a sacrifice for the sins of the people. But nobody else could go in there. Nobody else had access to God because the curtain demonstrated that God was not approachable. But now in the sacrifice of Jesus, he's approachable because of his gift of his body on the cross, which in essence is the sacrifice, now opens up for us the ability to see God. At his death, we've talked about, the curtain here that is mentioned was torn from the top to the bottom so that they could have access what a beautiful picture that we have here and in first peter chapter 3 verse 18 peter says this for christ also suffered once for sins the righteous who he was for the unrighteous that's us That he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. So all of this is a part of Jesus' high priestly ministry as he's in heaven waiting for us now. It's a new ministry, it's a living ministry, and now we have access because of what he has done. So our motive is this, we can get before God because of what he has done, and we can have access. The second thing is this, it's our manner. Hebrews 10:22 says let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean of an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. So first we're to draw near with a true or a sincere heart. True is the same word that is used in reference to the tabernacle in Hebrews chapter 8 verse 2 and in 9:24. And the heart stands for the whole or the inner life of a man. When we talk about our heart, we say, well, he's got heart. It's about who he is innerly. And it's important that God's people approach him in the right way, with a true heart, with a sincere heart, with, which is a pure heart. And we see that in God. And, and in Hebrews 4.12 it says, it's observed that the word of God judges the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. We may be able to fool some people, but we can't fool God because he knows exactly what our intentions of our heart are. He was confronted one time about his disciples not washing their hands before they ate. It's it's unclean. They're not following ceremonial laws. And and it's it's unclean now. Their eating is unclean. It's wrong. He says, no, no, it's not what you put in the mouth that is unclean. It's what comes out of the heart. The intentions of the heart. Our writer makes mention now that uh, not only is it about the heart, but it's about full assurance of faith. And so here he's demanding this boldness. We have the assurance of our faith that we can go before God. We can draw near to him because we have assurance in him. And he's provided this access to him because of what he's done through Jesus and through Christ alone. And the assurance of our salvation, our access to God, stems from what Jesus did and our trust in him. When he told Mary, even if you die, If you believe in me, you can live. Do you believe that? We have full assurance of what he has accomplished here for us. And so the remainder of the verse describes our means by which we draw near to God. So in in this chapter here, there are two perfect participles that describe events which preceded our drawing near, but have the effect which continue on not only in the past but to the present and also into the future. And that is this. The first one is our hearts are sprinkled, sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience. That word "sprinkle" is the same word that is used in chapter 9 when it was talking about the blood that the high priest then would sprinkle on the altar, on the altar of covenant. And he would sprinkle that as well on the people who were unclean by their sin. He would sprinkle it on the scroll, the book of the law, And everything that was used in the ceremony for sacrifice. The purpose was to make those things by the blood of that sacrifice ceremonially clean. And it remained then for one sacrifice to finally come. That's the sacrifice of Jesus to provide a true and an inner cleansing. So we have our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from this guilty conscience. And the blood of Christ applied to our lives... It removes from us the guilt. We no longer have to have guilt for the sins that we have done because this conscious, this guilty conscious has been cleansed. You you can't hold yourself accountable to the things that you've done in the past. God says he will forget them as far as the east is from the west, but yet we're the ones who bring up the problem. We always remember what we have done in our past that was sinful and wrong, and we can't let that go. But when our hearts have been sprinkled to cleanse us from this guilty conscience, this evil conscience, all of our guilt is gone. It's removed. The second drawing there we have is that our bodies are washed, he says, with pure water. So that kind of complements the first statement there. So it refers to the inner cleansing, and now this refers to the outer cleansing as well, the purification that takes place. Now that word that is translated pure in our passage here, it's it's used to describe the cleansing and the purification that Jesus brought by the sacrifice of himself for us to cleanse our conscience. And so listen what it says in Hebrews 9.14. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve a living God. See, his sacrifice is what purifies our conscience so that we have the ability to serve him. Now, our writer also indicates, and he recognizes the foundational role of baptism in this statement as well. He says it plays on the part of initiating into this new covenant, the relationship with God. We see that in Hebrews chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, and other passages in the New Testament also give clear evidence that immersion or baptism is, is practiced for the remission of sins. We see that in, in Acts chapter 2, verse 38, and in Acts 22, verse 16, Paul says that he had to, have his, he had to be baptized in order to wash his sins away. Both external and internal barriers, our guilt and our feelings of guilt always get in the way, but those things now have been removed so that we are not kept from drawing near to God because of what Jesus has done for us. So next, our attention then moves on here in this passage of Scripture, and it moves on to the second encouragement, the second exhortation where he says, let us hold fast, there in verse 23. So we're supposed to hold fast. Hold fast to what? The confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. So let us hold fast the confession of our hope. Our hope for what? Well, our hope that we're going to be able to stand within his presence. We're encouraged not only to hold fast or or to, to maintain this firm grasp on our hope, this, it's a usual, unusual expression. Usually we think that we're supposed to hold fast to our faith, right? But that's not what he says. You, you've got your faith, and your faith enables you to stand in the presence of God, and, and, and because of his sacrifices, cleanses you. But once you're there, now you hold fast on the hope. That you will be within His presence one of these days, and so we're supposed to hold on to our hope. But there's a point in referring to this hope, and it's always been described as it's already been described as an anchor for the soul in Hebrews chapter six, verse nineteen. Hold on to our hope, and so this is what he says: We have this in Hebrews six nineteen as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope, a hope that does what. A hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. You see, because his body and his sacrifice and what he did there on the cross has opened up that curtain. Now we have a hope that takes us beyond it into the very inner sanctuary where God is. We need to hold fast to our hope. Brooke Westcott, who was a 19th-century biblical scholar and and a a Greek linguist, he he translated and wrote out the Greek uh, New Testament for us and helped compile it for for our, our ability to study. He says, he makes this statement. He says, faith reposes completely in the love of God. Hope vividly anticipates that God will fulfill his promises in a particular way. Did you catch the difference? Faith reposes or it rests, it rests there, it reposes completely in God's love. But hope, hope is what anticipates that God is going to fulfill His promise that we can enter into heaven. And so our hope is the object of our confession. Christians can hold fast to their hope because we know that God can be trusted And when he makes a promise, that promise will be kept without fault. he's, He's taken the initiative in making this promise, and he's going to fulfill that promise that he's made. So our profession of our hope is to be without wavering, he says. Not wavering. It's, it's that, that ability to, should I go or should I not? Should I, and we don't know what we're going to do. You don't have to. There's confidence. And so our hope does not cause us to, to go forward and step back and go forward and step back. It just gives us confidence because we're hoping to stand within his presence. The profession of our hope that is without wavering. It's a word, however, that does not appear anywhere else in the New Testament. It occurs in other writings outside the New Testament, other papyri. <clears throat> and what it, what it refers to is the impartial ears of somebody in authority. So we hope that the somebody who is going to judge over us will be impartial. And it indicates an object which stands also absolutely straight. It's not tilted, it's not crooked, it's, but it's perfectly upright. And so we can take hold of Christ and never let go, even in the slightest, because he's not going to waver or bend. But still the question, I think, remains for all of us. Is it really possible to live by faith and hope without wavering? I waver. I don't think my hope is as strong and secure as as I want it to be. And so sometimes that guilt, the things that I know that I've done, I keep being irritated by them and it causes me to to stutter in my step and to waver at times. But he says we don't have to worry about wavering. Some translations use the word unswervingly. You, you walk a straight line, and you're not going to balance off of it. But God is faithful to provide the strength, the stamina, the endurance to make it. His faithful character is beyond all doubt. We can trust Him. And in His strength, we hold fast without wavering. The third thing I think we need to see here in this passage of Scripture is that we, it says, let us consider. Well, what are we supposed to consider? So this third exhortation says, let us consider one another, basically. We're supposed to think about other people as well. We're called to be a responsibility to each other. One of the oldest questions that was ever asked was asked by Cain in the book of Genesis. Cain was the son of Adam and Eve, and he killed his brother, Abel, because of his jealousy. Because God liked Abel's sacrifice better than his. And so God comes and he speaks to Cain, and he says, Hey, Cain, where's your brother? And here's the question that Cain responds with, Am I my brother's keeper? Well, we know the answer to that is, yes. Yes. You are. You and I are to care for those around us. We are our brother's keeper. We are supposed to be taking care of one another. It is our responsibility, not only in Genesis, but all the way back here into the New Testament in the book of Hebrews, we are told that we have... A process of taking care of one another. We are to consider each other. And so listen to what he has to say here in, in verse 24, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. I mean, the appeal to consider demands our concentrated attention. The same verb is used in Hebrews chapter three, verse one, in, in that we are to consider Jesus. And we are to fix our thoughts upon Jesus. And now we're supposed to fix our thoughts and focus on one another. How we can encourage and exhort one another to love and good works. So the the, the specific matter that we are to consider and fix our thoughts upon is is how we are supposed to, to encourage one another to do things in a positive fashion. This isn't a just, I'd like for you to consider it. This is a command. It's an imperative. You are supposed to do these things. You are supposed to, in faith, draw near to God. We are also now here to consider one another. And the word translated stir up, it demands a concentrated effort, and it refers to an intense emotion. It's also used in Acts chapter 15, verse 39, when Paul and Barnabas are in this, well, it's not translated stir up here, but they're irritated with each other, and they are in sharp disagreement with one another because of John Mark. A lot of times, this word "stir up" is not used in a positive connotation, but it's used in a negative way because you're agitated, you're irritated, and and it's just getting getting all your gall. There's passion behind it. He says you should be so passionate behind stirring up one another towards love and to good works. That's what we're supposed to do here. And so, just a side note as we're reading through Hebrews chapter ten through verses nineteen and twenty-five. In verse 22, 23, and 24, the three most important virtues of faith are mentioned. Faith, hope, and love. Remember, Paul says these three remain. Verse 22, faith. Verse 23, hope. Verse 24, love. Love provides a foundation That moves us forward to do things that are right and good. It, it's interesting that this kind of love is a product of relationship, a community. I mean, it's it's a virtue that requires others in its expression. One can practice faith all by themselves, they can practice hope all by themselves. But you can't practice love unless there's somebody else there. It requires a relationship. That word agape appears only one other time in the book of Hebrews. And it's in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 10, when his readers are, are, are offered this assurance. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. We're to love one another to good works. We're to serve them. To stir up other believers forward in the Christian life follows of Jesus when we meet together. Some of the readers of Hebrews, they were neglecting meeting together. Yeah, We see that we've got this, this struggle in the world right now where we're not supposed to be together, so we're supposed to, quote, socially distance But the church is not made to socially distance. It is made for relationship. It is made for community. It is made for a oneness. And Hebrews now tells us, as we're reading here in chapter 10, that that we have to not neglect it. Listen to what it says in verse 25. Not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some. But encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. See, isolation is a dangerous practice. We need each other. We desperately need each other. You cannot be a part of the church by yourself. We have to have community That's what he's called us to do. So if it means we've got to take precautions to do that, we take precautions to do that. But we've got to be together. And some people back here when he was writing this letter, some of them said, I don't need to be with the church. I can still believe God and stay at home. But he's saying, no, no, no. You can't. You've got to be together. So you cannot neglect the meeting together. And some people are making a habit of it. It doesn't take long for habits to be formed. And unfortunately in our society today, we have formed a habit of isolationism. Even in the church. James Moffat, He's a 20th century Scottish biblical scholar and he translated the Bible. He's got his own translation of it. Concerning this passage of scripture here in Hebrews chapter 10, he makes this statement. He says, Any early Christian who attempted to live like a pious particle without the support of the community ran a serious risk in an age when there was no public opinion to support him. Did you hear that? Any Christian who attempted to live like a pious particle, in other words, somebody who's trying to live by themselves righteously and holy he said, without the support of the community, meaning the church, they ran a serious risk in an age when there was no public opinion to support him. When the community around does not care about Christianity and they want to squash it, And you're going to try to be on your own? You can't make it very long. You need the support of the body of Christ in order to make it through tough times. And so the writer here in Hebrews goes on to suggest that Christians ought to be exhorting one another. Encouraging one another. And all the more, he says, as you see the day approaching, as that day is drawing near... We should be encouraging one another all the more because Jesus is coming and we don't want to allow anybody to shrink back and to fall away. Regular fellowship with believers is an essential, let me say that again, regular fellowship with believers is an essential ingredient in the Christian growth. You are not going to mature in Christ without being with one another. So the the readers of Hebrews knew that the day of Christ's return was coming close. And the closeness of that day compelled them to encourage one another all the more. And on that day when Jesus appears a second time, Hebrews 9, 28 says that He is coming to save those who are eagerly waiting for Him. Did you catch that? Are we eagerly anticipating His return Are we rising in the morning with our eyes looking up saying, has he made it back yet? Can we wait? Is he knocking at the door? I heard some sound outside. Oh, it was just thunder. I thought it might have been the trumpet blare." Are we eagerly waiting for his return? Persecution may have led some of the believers here that the author is talking to to drop out of the relationship and the fellowship of the church. But the remedy that they needed was to begin meeting again. And the verses following here in verses 26-31 through show the outcome of neglecting meeting together with believers. And what happens is, is they continue to deliberately sin and eventually they shrink back. But we don't have that kind of spirit within us to do that. And careless living can produce contempt for Jesus and even a renunciation of their faith in Him. While he was imprisoned in Rome, Paul, he wrote his friends in the community of Philippi. It's one of his most joyous letters. You read the Philippian letter and it's filled with joy. But he's writing it from prison. Most inmates, I think, find a grim existence in their confinement. The ones I've talked with, they don't like where they are. They don't like all all the difficulties of that. They don't like the lack of freedom. They don't like the confinement. They don't like the isolationism. But Paul announced to his Philippian friends that his confinement, him being in prison, contributed to the spread of the gospel. You think, what? Paul says... Him going into prison contributed to the spread of the gospel message. Soldiers, ordinary servants of the, of the emperor, and, and many people, even the household of him. Many people learned that Paul's confinement, his imprisonment, came because of his commitment to Christ, and they wanted to know about it. And on the outside, some of Paul's Christian friends, they became bolder and bolder in their witness when they say that God's care, of, when, they, when they saw God's care of Paul. Others who seemed to be Paul's enemies, they tried to add misery to his affliction and it never worked. Whatever their motivation, Paul rejoiced at the preaching of the gospel. But what Paul, for the cause Paul, the prisoner to have this kind of joy, we ask, well, how could he do that? But Paul would make this statement in Philippians chapter four, verse 13. And he says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. A man who is confined, and yet he says, I can do all things. There's nothing that I cannot do because he gives me the strength to do it. Here in Hebrews, our writer is telling that he knew the Christians would find power in Christ's permanent sacrifice. He had seen the ineffectiveness of the Old Testament covenant and the sacrifices that had to take place year after year after year because they could never do away with sin. They could never cleanse the guilty conscience. They could never remove the evil of the heart. But the sacrifice that Jesus makes does. And his his sacrifice did the job because it obtained forgiveness for his followers, unlike the Jewish priest who regularly offered up sacrifices. Because Christ's sacrifice had the power to change people, these three appeals here in chapter 19 are given. So they are urged, they are commanded, they are challenged, one, to draw near to God to hold fast to their commitment and their confession and to stir up fellow believers towards love and good works. Because some of the fellow believers were considering turning away from Christ. And as a church, they can't let that happen. And I would say the same thing for us today. As a church, we cannot let others abandon The fellowship of faith. So even if they are quarantined at home, we have to find ways to connect with them. We have to find ways to be a part of their life so that they don't feel abandoned by us, but they still have that ability to have fellowship. The church, when it began, did not have buildings like this, they had homes in which they met in regularly. They, they visited with each other in the marketplace. They encouraged each other on the street. They did everything they could to challenge one another towards faith. And so here's my challenge for us today. Our challenge is this. There are going to be people that you have not seen in months because of this virus. Have you abandoned them? Or are you urging them and encouraging them to hang on through your love so that they can continue to do good works for Christ we can't become lax now is the time for the church to rise and to move and to make a difference in our community to let people know that they're not forgotten but they are forgiven you've got a decision you need to make for Christ I want to challenge you this morning to do that We're going to have our invitation. And if there's something you need encouragement with, you can share that with us. We'll be willing to walk with you, do whatever it takes to get you there. But you've got to make the decision because Christ compels you to. Let's stand together, Rob.